All right, everyone, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage. With me, as always, is my good buddy, Will Sloan, recording via Zoom from my apartment because there is COVID in the household. Luke and I are maintaining a distance. Well, unbeknownst to Will, I've actually invited a third Mike uh, to join us here, uh, who's who's with us already, though he may not know it. Um, I've opened up the uh, chat GPT and I asked it if it knows about the Michael and Us podcast. I just want to read you what it said. As an AI language model, I am aware of the existence of the Michael and Us podcast. It is a podcast that explores the intersection of politics and popular culture through the lens of film. The hosts, Will Sloan and Luke Savage, discuss and analyze films that reflect social and political issues such as class struggle, imperialism, and neoliberalism. They also examine the role of cinema in shaping our perceptions of society and politics. So, Will, do you have any questions for the chatbot? Anything you'd like to ask it about our podcast? Uh, who is the better host, Will or Luke? All right, let's ask it. As an AI language model, I do not have the ability to form personal opinions, preferences, or biases. <laughs> My response are based purely on the data, blah, blah, blah. In terms of the Mike Lenos podcast, both Will Sloan and Luke Savage bring their own unique perspectives and insights to the discussions, and both are highly respected within the podcasting Ooh. community. Ultimately, it's up to the individual listener to decide which host they prefer or find more engaging. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's refine the question. Which host, Will or Luke, is more successful? All right, I'm going to fire that off to the computer. Let's see what it's uh, thinking. I mean, it's beginning. Uh, it's beginning by offering the usual disclaimer about not being able to offer qualitative judgments. But then it adds, both hosts are accomplished podcasters and writers, and they have collaborated on various projects in addition to Michael and us. It is important to note that success can be measured in many different ways. It is up to <laughs> individuals to define and pursue their own goals and aspirations. Now, what what is, you know, what is this thing? Is this my therapist? Well, so here's the thing: Chomsky and, and a few colleagues wrote a really good piece in the New York Times last week about the chatbot. And honestly, it's it's pretty comforting as a piece. I mean, basically the argument is that, you know, this software, this type of AI, uh, it really can't make qualitative judgments. It can aggregate and sort of analyze information in very complex ways, but it is not even close to replicating what the human brain can do. Um, and so they actually offer several uh, different conversations they have with it that demonstrate this. Now, later on, I'm going to show you a far superior op-ed also about AI. But um, since I did invite it to be our third mic here, let's, uh, it's not that we can't have a lot of fun with it as our third mic. So what else should we ask it? Well, first I would ask, uh, what other co-hosts should we invite to be on the show? Well, I don't think it knows that it's actually talking to the hosts of Michael and us. So I should, I should include that detail I'm going to ask, what other co-hosts should we, the hosts, invite to appear on the show as guests? So, you know, standard disclaimers. <laughs> I mean, this one, it's it's really flubbing. I mean, I, I'm disappointed. I think it's hedging here. It's not offering us personal suggestions. It's just uh, it's just saying, like, film critics and historians. Uh, the podcast frequently discusses the socio-political themes in movies, blah, blah, blah. Uh, academics and researchers. I'm, I'm going to see if I can press it here. But who specifically would fit with the show's wider ethos. <laughs> Sorry, so um, I have this up on the screen now and it's it's and it's typing, you know, if people have never used this. They, oh my god. Sorry. All right. I'm really wow. loving these suggestions. Wow. Oh my god. Yeah, so it, it is it is responding in real time and so far uh, well, the first two are terrible suggestions. I think that are we naming AI names? Do we name names? Giving us an industrial revolution yet? Um, number four, a, yes. We number are. four, a Cornell West is not a bad choice. I, I'm sure he would love to be the third Mike. I, I well, I yeah. I mean, I think he could come on. I, I I think that there's like you know a forty percent chance Cornell West will be a guest sometime. I think Zizek, uh, you know, might might come on at some point. But uh, folks, here are the other suggestions that the the, the chatbot gave us. Will what what's number one on the well, here. number one, of course, is Tanahisi Coates <laughs> on the grounds that he could provide valuable insights into how popular culture reflects and shapes political discourse. Number two, 
of course, is Ava DuVernay. And uh, number three is Gia Tolentino. Well, I got a, I got my own question for our, uh, our third mic here, and, and that's um, that I'm going to ask it to generate some prospective titles for Michael and Us episodes. <laughs> and, you know, uh, again, it's sort of onto something here, but it, it's not really able to capture the general uh, spirit. And, and, and I don't think that that's because it doesn't have enough data. One thing that's interesting to me, Will, is that I think that the AI bot has a greater sense of the podcast from sort of like the film side to me. I mean, I guess a lot of these are sort of like mashups of uh, film and politics, but I have asked it some questions about completely different things, and it's it's answered a little more intelligently than this. So just an example, folks, of some titles that it gave us, which all kind of sound like titles for people's master's theses. Uh, it's like... The Politics of Nostalgia, How Hollywood Reflects and Shapes Our Cultural Memory. Uh, the Hollywood Left, A History of Political Movements in American Cinema. You know, America at War, How Hollywood Has Depicted American Military Conflict Over the Decades. So, well, is there anything else you'd like to ask it? I mean, I feel like we could go one more, but I'm, I'm starting to think that it's not pulling its own weight as the third mic here and that, you know, it might be tough. Yeah, you don't have to ask it a question about Michael and us. You could ask it about, like, the nature of existence if you want. Well, actually, I do have a Michael and us related question, more of a business question. It's hard out there for content creators like us. We need to find new ways to remain relevant. I'd like to ask, would Michael and us become a more lucrative podcast if it became right wing? Okay. Well, as always, it's, you know, it's going to have the standard disclaimer. I mean, it's, you know, not being able to offer certain kinds of judgments. But then it adds, while there are some political podcasts that cater to right-wing perspectives and have a large audience, there are also many successful podcasts that take a more progressive or leftist stance. Ultimately, a podcast success is determined by many factors, including the quality of the content, the level of the engagement with the audience, and the marketing promotion strategies used to reach a wider audience. It's up to the creators to decide, blah, blah, blah. So I don't think that it, it's going to really offer us All right. Uh, yeah, you know, the, much, uh, the uh, AI bot here. has been completely useless, but I actually do have just one more question. Can you ask it, is there a god? <laughs> As an AI language model, I do not have personal beliefs or opinions. Oh my god. I mean, every single question. I mean, what good is this? Ultimately, the question of whether God exists is a deeply personal and subjective one that each individual must answer for themselves. I don't know. This was a terrible idea. Awful third mic. <laughs> Uh, ne <laughs> never want to see the AI bot back again. We're killing the AI bot. It is uh, duly ejected from the third chair. All right. Well, as I said, we are going to come back to uh, the subject of AI, at least a little bit later in the episode. But we did some pre-records last week. And so by the time you're hearing this, you know, the the week anniversary of the uh, invasion of Iraq, 20 years will have passed. And, uh, you know, we didn't want to let it pass without uh, without acknowledging it and talking about it a little bit. So I've had Iraq on my mind this week. And I have a couple of clips that I'd like to share. I mean, there's one in particular that for me, I think, is more emblematic of the, uh, I don't know, just the wider climate in the media leading up to the invasion and kind of, uh, you know, into the invasion's uh, early months. I mean, I have to say that those years after September 11th were, I think... I mean, the, the most sinister I've ever lived through, I think there was a kind of bipartisan crack up. You know, we talked about this when we did that episode on like, was it the first David Letterman episode or first Jimmy Kimmel or something after? God, what what did we do? I can't was remember. It, was I it, was it, was it Jay Leno? Was it like, ah, so you seen this? You heard about this? Uh, you know, what? it was the first Jay Leno. They hit the, they hit the Twin Towers. Uh. It was the first Jay Leno because you'll recall that Jay Leno came back and he said something along the lines of, you know, what I what I do out here doesn't really matter, you know, in the grand scheme of things. What really matters is, is hardworking people out there at Ground Zero. Well, of course, you know, uh, we provide jokes on The Tonight Show. And then, you know, that that health people, I think. Yeah, I, I remember. I do remember that. We did. Wait, was that, that was that the monologue where he basically said, like, that they asked the, the president or they, they asked uh, they asked Rudy Giuliani, like, is it OK to laugh again? I. I understand why you would mix some of these things up. I will just briefly explain to you what each of the late night shows did. You see, Jay Leno did that humble braggy monologue about how, well, you know, you know, we're not the real heroes here at the Tonight Show. That's actually other people who are the real heroes. And that monologue didn't really have much impact on the discourse. David Letterman, because he was the New York talk show host and also because he was 
you know, a, a very irony poisoned kind of guy, a man with a great big suit of irony and self-consciousness. He opened his heart after 9-11 and he delivered a very earnest monologue that brought America together, expressing fear and confusion, but also uh, love for the great city of New York. And I mean, if you were around at the time, you probably heard a lot about how David Letterman had gone from codger to comforter in those weeks. Watching all of this, I wasn't sure uh, that I should be doing a television show because for, for 20 years we've been in, in the city making fun of everything, making fun of the city, uh, making fun of my hair, making fun of Paul, well... <laughs> Very early on, uh, after the attack, and how strange does it uh, sound to invoke that phrase, after the attack, um, Mayor Giuliani encouraged us and here lately implored us to, to go back to our lives, go on living, uh, continue trying to make uh, New York City uh, the place that it should be. But you're also thinking about Saturday Night Live which oh opened God. with, when the when the show came back, I mean, SNL, probably the quintessential New York television show. Uh, I think that opened with, you know, some firefighters and maybe a choir. I don't know, a whole, whole big solemn show. And at the end of all that, Lauren Michaels asks Mayor Giuliani, uh, can we be funny again? <laughs> and Mayor Giuliani said, well, why start now? Live from New York, it's Saturday night. So every show, every show had to acknowledge. And I actually do think that this uh, was the beginning of Saturday Night Live playing a particular role in the national psyche where anytime a tragedy happened, like after the shooting at Sandy Hook. After after Hillary first... Clinton lost the election. And by well, the Rudy Giuliani well, thing, that's that's got to be only the second worst thing they've ever broadcast because that Kate McKinnon singing Hallelujah, you know, as Hillary Clinton is, I think, the worst thing I've ever seen on TV. I'm pretty sure, did I think we established this. I think my memory of it is that Leonard Cohen, like, died the next day and i think he actually died a few days earlier i think you corrected me on that yeah he died a few days earlier because <laughs> it was a double tribute it was a tribute oh to both God. uh leonard cohen's death and an acknowledgement of the great national tragedy that was donald trump's oh election God. um but yeah you know a year or two before that or however many years it was they opened the first show after the sandy hook shooting with like a children's choir singing Silent Night. So SNL, you know, as one of the last remnants of the monoculture, is now a place that has to help its audience through national tragedies when they occur. I mean, that stuff is pretty funny to revisit in retrospect. This week, though, I was I was revisiting like the media coverage in the lead up to the invasion and kind of in the in the early months. And I mean, if you weren't there, um, or if you know, if you're too young to remember it, I cannot stress enough just how insanely bloodthirsty and deranged and jingoistic absolutely everything was. I was uh, looking into some of the coverage that uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting offered at the time. So they were doing uh, analyses of cable news uh, broadcasts and things uh, to see you know, what the nature of the coverage was. And there was a, a, a two-week period surrounding that infamous Colin Powell appearance at the UN where he basically guaranteed that the invasion was going to happen. And fairness and accuracy in reporting found that out of 267 guests on ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS uh, in that two-week period, only one guest said anything questioning the war. Now, even that is putting it too strongly because the guest was Ted Kennedy and all he said was like, oh, I don't know, is it going to be expensive? And like, how long are we going to be there or whatever? So the reservations were pretty pragmatic disagreements, right? It wasn't like a full-throated critique of, of the war. Uh, you know, famously, there's the incident where Phil Donahue was booted off of MSNBC. Meanwhile, moving on from cable news, I mean, there was just the newspapers, if anything, were, were even more insane. And this was a by partisan thing. Uh, so, for example, you know, Richard Cohen in the Washington Post wrote, only a fool or possibly a Frenchman could reject the WMD case. David Remnick, you know, a lot of these people, by the way, later became heroes in the resistance, which is a whole interesting conversation in itself. David Remnick uh, wrote in The New Yorker, 
a piece called Making the Case, very much echoing Richard Cohen. Jonathan Chait, you know, wrote enthusiastically about the invasion. And then when I was looking for that, I found uh, the, the stupid column he wrote 10 years later, because this is kind of a dual genre. There was like the bloodthirsty jingoism, and then there was the sort of like fake mea culpa or sort of revisionism that came after. So 10 years later, he wrote that sweeping out the existing thought and existing thinkers, that that's him, by the way, who'd um, gotten this wrong would be, you know, myopic and, and ignorant. David Brooks, you know, who was writing uh, in the Weekly Standard, you know, rest in power. Um, he wrote that uh, nobody from the peace camp will stand up and say that Saddam Hussein is not a fundamental threat to the world. Uh, so this was a big feature of this kind of commentary at the time. Just the idea that basically, if you express any reservations about this, you are literally with the enemy, right? That was part of the rhetoric of the administration. But as with so much about this time, a lot of the worst stuff was kind of like launched through the media. Like, I do think it came in sort of top-down fashion. A lot of the worst stuff, both in terms of rhetoric, but also in terms of bad facts, things that were not true, that came from the media. It was sort of outsourced to the media. There was one technique that Seymour Hersh wrote about at the time, the uh, legendary investigative journalist uh, Seymour Hersh. This was called stovepiping, and this was a technique that was used basically to kind of launder things that were not true and have them be reported as fact in the media. Now, as I understand it, this partly came from the impatience of people like Dick Cheney when they were talking to these big intelligence bureaucracies and they weren't getting the answers that they wanted. Dick Cheney, super paranoid, super bloodthirsty, just wants to go to war. So he decides like, all right, the bureaucracies are obstructing us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to like mid-level, lower level officials or have someone do it for me. And what they're going to do is give me like unconfirmed stuff that is still being evaluated, hasn't been verified, you know, and then through various processes, that kind of stuff would be leaked to the press. So then you'd have stuff in the New York Times where it'd be like, well, guess what? The intelligence community is looking into whether Saddam Hussein tried to buy yellow cake uh, somewhere in Africa, which is a precursor to, you know, WMDs or whatever. And, you know, sometimes by the time this actually came out in reporting, it wouldn't even be like, this is something that's being looked into and is unconfirmed. It would be like, Oh, well, uh, Saddam Hussein tried to purchase yellow cake. And then Dick Cheney or, you know, Donald Rumsfeld or something goes on Meet the Press and basically says, oh, well, you know, this isn't just me saying it. Look, it's been reported in the New York Times. So there was an absolutely deranged crack up that in the political class was bipartisan, in the media was bipartisan as well. Now, I have something to share with you, Will, and with all you listeners that it's not from exactly 20 years ago. It's from a little less than 20 years ago because it's actually from the day that Baghdad fell to coalition forces. And it's a British example, not an American example. But when I was thinking about Iraq and the media this week and the sort of collapse of any barrier of separation between the press and, you know, the parts of the state, which was like most parts, that were, were pushing for the war and cheerleading it. I couldn't really think of anything better than this. So I just want to share this clip with you right now. So this is Andrew Marr speaking in front of Number 10 Downing Street. This is in April 2003. Um, so Baghdad was captured less than a month after the initial invasion. Now, if you're not in Britain and you don't know who Andrew Marr is, Andrew Marr is the BBC's political editor, okay? So he is a very important figure in the British media, you know, a leading talking head on Britain's public broadcaster. And this is how uh, he presented things on the occasion of uh, the fall of Baghdad to the British people. Uh, Andy, is it safe to assume that Mr. Blair, like so many of the rest of us, was uh, glued to his television for parts of today? It certainly is. He and his advisors have been watching this and, you know, all the usual caveats apply. There could be some ghastly scenes uh, in the future. There could be terrorist attacks. All sorts of things could go wrong. But frankly, Hugh, the main mood is unbridled relief. I've been watching ministers wander around with smiles like split watermelons. Well, Mr. Blair's had his share of troubles and worries, as you rightly say, over the past few weeks. We've talked about them many times. Yes. To what extent has that changed now today? Well, I think this does one thing. Um, it draws a line under what had been before this war, uh, a period of uh, when a faint air of pointlessness almost was hanging over Downing Street. There was all these slightly tawdry arguments and scandals. That is now history. Uh, Mr Blair is well aware that all his critics out there in the party and beyond aren't going to thank him because they're only human for being right when they've been wrong. And he knows that there might be trouble ahead, as I've said. 
but I think this is a very, very important moment for him. It gives him a new freedom and a new self-confidence. Uh, he confronted uh, many critics. I don't think anybody after this is going to be able to say of Tony Blair that he's somebody who is driven by the drift of public opinion or focus groups or opinion polls. He took all of those on. He said that they would be able to take Baghdad without a bloodbath and that in the end the Iraqis would be celebrating. And on both of those points he has been proved conclusively right and it would be entirely ungracious, uh, even for his critics, not to acknowledge that tonight he stands as a larger man and a stronger Prime Minister as a result. Andrew, many thanks. So I find that absolutely incredible. I mean, you know, here you have the political editor of the BBC. I mean, you know, he sounds like he's doing spin for Blair and his government. I mean, there's so much in there that is uh, obscene. I mean, the fact that he ends by saying that, like, Tony Blair is, you know, ostensibly, you know, the leader of a democracy, but, you know, he's got the courage to stare down these, like, unprecedented mobilizations against the war. I mean, Britain, I don't want to slag off the U.S. anti-war movement, which mounted a heroic effort as well. But, I mean, the protests in Britain were the largest protests at the time, anyway, in British history. There were huge demonstrations. British public opinion was, I mean, there was a much sharper kind of disagreement within the British public about the war and, and, you know, the existence of WMDs and that kind of thing. The fact that Marr takes care to, to, to say of Blair's critics that it would be ungracious of them not to admit that they were wrong. I mean, just the, the whole way that he narrates this, I mean, it's just incredibly disturbing. Well, thinking about this time has uh, stoked the embers of nostalgia within me. You're thinking, remember when the world was neatly divided into good and evil and we were on the side of righteousness, you know? Uh, we were toppling the dictators. It's easy after so many years of the anti-Trump hashtag resistance to forget that there was a time when it was actually unfashionable for celebrities to speak about politics. I know we've all seen that clip of Michael Moore doing his anti-Iraq war speech at the Oscars, and it cuts to that front row of celebrities all with rictus grins <laughs> not clapping. <laughs> we live in a time where we have fictitious ele election results that elects a fictitious president. <laughs> We, we live in a time where we have a man sending us to war for fictitious reasons, whether it's the fiction of duct tape or the fictitious of orange alerts. We are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. I have two articles here that I'd like to share that give a sense of what was happening in the culture sphere at the time. So here's one, just a very basic Chicago Tribune article called Reaction to War Comments Dims Star Power. This is from May 21st, 2003. Lethal weapon actor Danny Glover is the latest celebrity facing an icy brand of national pride that puts the pinch on public figures who question American foreign policy. A threatened boycott seeks to force MCI, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what MCI is, but uh, to dump Glover as its pitchman because of views he expressed about Cuba and against the Iraq war. Similar frostiness extended to the Dixie Chicks and actors Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, and Susan Sarandon when they came out against war in Iraq. Here are those three names. Those were the classic names. You know, you had your anti-war rat pack back then. It's interesting to think that like the liberal demonology of Susan Sarandon goes back like that far. And I, I mean, I think it's interesting. Like, I mean, uh, you know, there really is like a, not quite a one to one ratio. But I mean, the people who were the liberals, the people that wrote columns that were like the progressive case for toppling Saddam Hussein or whatever, or, you know, the celebrities who uh, spoke in favor of it. There's like, you know, pretty much a direct line between those people and the people who became like the anti-Trump resistance. And of course, right, for, like the, all the neocons came over and they're all Democrats now, too. So we're all it's all just one big happy family. But it's like, I love the idea that a certain type of Democrat who's extremely online hates Susan Sarandon because she had the audacity not to endorse Hillary Clinton, but also had the audacity to speak out against the Iraq war. I mean, truly, have, has there ever been a more evil woman? I can't think of one. There is so much concern about this in Hollywood that in March, before the fighting in Iraq even began, the Screen Actors Guild issued a statement warning studio executives not to deny work to entertainers who speak against war in Iraq. 
Even the hint of the blacklist must never again be tolerated in this nation, the Union said. In Glover's case, it was not just his anti-war activism that drew the wrath of the right. It also was his signature on a two-paragraph statement from 160 artists and intellectuals that appeared May 1st in the Cuban government newspaper Granma. Ooh, May 1st. The statement, addressed to the conscience of the world, called the Iraq War an unprovoked, unjustified invasion and said there is a strong campaign of destabilization against Cuba that could be used as a pretext for an invasion, much like that launched against Iraq. The second portion was seen by some conservatives as favorable to Fidel Castro's government. Oh my god. On May 8th, the public interest group Judicial Watch called for the MCI boycott, saying Glover lent tacit support to Castro's brutal crackdowns on dissidents when he signed that document. I mean, this is striking for another reason, which is that, like, it shows you how much the war on terror and, you know, its, you know, component parts, the invasion of Iraq being a major one, it shows you how much of it was just rehashing the old sort of anti-communist formula. It was like so much of American politics and culture had had this as the fulcrum. It's like, there's two sides, you gotta pick one. Glover replied, this is much larger than me. It's larger than my comments and my signing a letter supporting Cuba's right to self-determination. People can take that in whatever way they can. They will use the war and they will use my signing letter as a pretext for their attacks. So that's how that article concludes. Uh, The other article is from the Baltimore Sun and it's titled Humorists Enter the War Zone from April 20th, 2003. It begins, for those of us who like to see television take anti-war figures seriously, or at least somewhat seriously, I think the hedging of that opening sentence speaks to the climate that prevailed at the time, that the idea of taking anti-war people seriously had to be immediately amended to at least, at least somewhat seriously. There's been only one sure place to turn in recent weeks, Comedy Central's The Daily Show. Comedian Chris Rock said recently on the faux news program that reporters from genuine news outlets have been trying to trip him up on his political stance. (laughs) No, I'm not really for the war, Rock says, he replies, and then gets told, so you're against the troops. I didn't say that, Rock explodes with a mischievous grin, then tells Daily Show anchor Jon Stewart, there's this weird McCarthyism right now. Stewart, sharing his frustration, says, it's as though there's only two positions you can have. You're either for the war or against the troops. There's no dearth of humor on The Daily Show, which airs 11 p.m. Monday through Thursday. Wall Street, Madison Avenue, Washington, and Hollywood make particularly appealing targets. About 10 days after the U.S. invaded Iraq, Stewart posed the tough questions, quote, Will the war be over soon? How will a post-war Iraq be governed? When will Madonna exploit the conflict? Unquote. A recent Daily Show story on a conservative activist's anti-Hollywood campaign ended with correspondent Ed Helms' We Are the World-style anthem that instead carried the refrain, Shut up, celebrities. Similar jokes, if less daffy ones, could have found a home on other late-night television shows. Yet many people are currently leery of attacking authority figures such as President Bush, even rhetorically, a stock political jab by Democratic Senator John F. Kerry calling for regime change in next year's president elections led to condemnations. Many late-night television hosts have softened their barbs, finding easy jokes or tying Iraq to former President Bill Clinton's peccadilloes. No such apprehensions exist at The Daily Show. Pieties are pieties, and they exist merely to be punctured. So again, it's an interesting article for conveying what the climate was at the time. It positions The Daily Show as like, well, okay, here's here's the one place on television where you can really tell the truth. The one place where pieties aren't allowed in this culture of silence. But it also stresses to underline the truth-telling is um, ecumenical and rigorously nuanced. And it's actually asking very serious questions like, will the war be over soon? How will Iraq be governed? And uh, don't worry, it, it still makes time to laugh at those silly celebrities who are protesting the war. Well, I've got one more clip to share, and um, this is going to take us into uh, uh, another discussion that is going to be a little more fun. You know, if this is the vegetables, that's the dessert. Uh, now, this is Thomas Friedman, uh, I believe, on Charlie Rose. And uh, this one isn't from March of 2003. It's from May. And he was asked, you know, now the war is over. There's some difficulty with the peace. You know, maybe the WMDs aren't really appearing. Was it worth doing, etc.? Um, and this is how Thomas Friedman responded. The terrorism bubble that basically built up over the 1990s said, flying airplanes into the World Trade Center, that's okay. 
wrapping yourself with dynamite and blowing up Israelis in a pizza parlor? That's okay. Because we're weak and they're strong and the weak have a different morality. Having your preachers say that's okay? That's okay. Having your charities raise money for people who do these kinds of things? That's okay. And having your press call people who do these kind of things martyrs? That's okay. And that built up as a bubble, Charlie. And 9-11 to me was the, the, the peak of that bubble. And what we learned on 9-11 in a gut way was that that bubble was a fundamental threat to our open society. Because there is no wall high enough, no INS agent smart enough, no metal detector efficient enough to protect an open society from people motivated by that bubble. And what we needed to do was go over to that part of the world, I'm afraid, and burst that bubble. We needed to go over there, basically, um, and um, uh, take out a very big stick um, right in the heart of, of that world and, um, and burst that bubble. And there was only one way to do it. Because part of that bubble said, we've got you. This bubble is actually going to level the balance of power between us and you because we don't care about life. We're ready to sacrifice, and all you care about are your stock options and your hummers. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Basra to Baghdad um, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care uh, about our open society? You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow? Well, suck on this, okay? That, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. It was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. That's the real truth. So there you have it. Well, pretty deeply, chilling, deeply I gotta say. Yeah. Again, emblematic of the wider climate at the time. I mean, you know, if you're not watching the clip, if you're just listening, uh, you don't get the full effect because the look in Friedman's eyes, I mean, just the kind of like psychotic expression on his face, the relish that he's feeling, the kind of almost like libidinal energy. Sadistic. Yeah, sadistic is a good word. I mean, that is exactly what's going on here. Um, and the fact that he ends that by saying, like, look, we could have hit all these other places. We hit, we hit Iraq because we could. That's what this is about. Suck on this. You know, this is one of the leading at the time, one of the leading commentators, ostensibly a, a liberal one in the English speaking world. And this is how he's in defense speaking. of liberal democracy and free society. Absolutely insane. Um, now, for completely different reasons, I have actually had Tom Friedman on the brain this week. I check in on him every now and again, and you know, that clip and others like it are, are particularly upsetting for me as somebody who has, ironically, has consumed a lot of what, you know, the majority of his output is. You know, I dip in and, in and out every now and then. And you know, if you've ever read a Tom Friedman column, right, he only writes one column. You know, there's like the classic Gawker takedown, I think it was by Hamilton Nolan back in 2013 that was called Tom Friedman Writes His Only Column Again. And like, this is not an exaggeration. It's not an understatement. Tom Friedman is just this like weaver uh, and has been since the 1990s of this particular type of narrative that he applies to anything and everything. And if you've never read a Tom Friedman column, I mean, essentially since the 1990s, every single one of his columns basically has been about how something big is happening. Okay. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, there has been some kind of event or meta event or process that is unfolding that is revolutionizing absolutely everything and anything. Folks, it's going to necessitate breaking from the old formulas, new thinking, revolutionary new thinking on the scale of like 50 industrial revolutions. Now, what any of this actually is, what it's about, what it's going to do, any kind of uh, specificity. Thing is, Friedman, he's not a serious person, so it, he never actually gets to that level. It's pure like Davos man meets like at the level of writing, like little Carmine from The Sopranos, because Friedman, among other things, is also one of the worst writers in the English language. You know, like we are always at the precipice of an enormous crossroads. That's where we're at with Tom Friedman. And so I decided to check in on him this week. And would you believe it? He has some thoughts on chatbot AI in a column called Our New Promethean Moment, which 
really sounds like if you asked the chat GPT to come up with a name for a Tom Friedman column, that's like something it would generate. So Will, I understand like you don't really know Tom Friedman as a writer. You only know him by I mean, his I reputation. know him by reputation as as we all do, but no, I don't unlike you, I don't make time to read him. I have I have my own band of freaks that I read, you know, <laughs> Armand White, James Berardinelli, you know, Fiora Mastracci, you know, I've I've got I've got my own whack pack. <laughs> Well, uh, incidentally, we should uh, dip back into Fior at some time. You know, I'd love to hear his take on the uh, on the Oscar winners this year. I'm sure he's got some thoughts on uh, on them and 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 wokeness. Uh, anyway, before we get to this column specifically, I want to say a few things about Tom Friedman's style. There's a few things to look out for in any Tom Friedman column. Regrettably, this one does not have his signature move, which is, you know, he always interviews a cab driver. Like, he's always in a cab somewhere in Europe or Asia or maybe the United States. And the cab driver is always, you know, he's always project. The cab driver never exists, right? It's always like uh, he's projecting some kind of like uh, salt of the earth, you know, folksy wisdom about globalization or something onto the cab driver. But, you know, if not a cab driver, there's always some kind of like conversation or something that he's uh, he's relaying at the start. So that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing, just to sort of prepare you all and, and to prepare you, Will, is that something you have to understand about Tom Friedman, OK, is that he's a system builder. OK, Tom Friedman's corpus is like the Cimmerillion for neoliberalism. All right. It's a massive universe of lore and endless self-reference. Now. It sounds more daunting than it is because the thing you have to understand is that none of it makes any sense. Like it's pure solipsism. It's just like he constructs these categories in the context of a column and then he refers to them later in the column while also modifying them in ways that don't make any sense because he can't even really like follow his own threads. Everything is always like inevitably tied together through kind of non sequiturs like that, that really don't make any sense. So, you know, for example, Tom Friedman has, you know, a famous thing that's been dubbed the rule of holes where he says, you know, uh, when you're in a hole, stop digging. If you're in three holes, bring a lot of shovels. You know, there's always stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, Friedman's big book was called The World is Flat, which, um, you know, this was a book about how, again, it doesn't really make any sense. The premise is that because of interconnectivity, the world is flattening, like we're more interconnected on a flat earth than a round one, which doesn't make any sense. Like I said, he's a system builder. So he builds this out and he says that there are 10 flatteners, which are all being enhanced by four steroids. You know, flatteners are like Netscape, uh, you know, outsourcing the end of the Cold War. But then each of those is being modified in some way by what he calls steroids. And he had four of those, digital, mobile, personal, and virtual. And then if memory serves, there actually turned out to be six steroids and it gets incredibly convoluted because the last steroid, which is wireless technology, is actually a new thing that he dubs Uber steroids. So this is, I'm not going to go through the whole argument of the world is flat. I just raised this because I feel like you need to be primed if you've never read Tom Friedman for what's coming next. Like he introduces these ideas. He builds more and more complex taxonomies onto the initial idea that make less and less sense. So with that in mind, let's go into our new Promethean moment. This was in the New York Times on March the 21st in the year of our Lord, 2023. I had a most remarkable but unsettling experience last week. Craig Mundy, the former chief research and strategy officer for Microsoft, was giving me a demonstration of chat GPT-4, the most advanced technology of the chat, blah, blah, blah. Craig was preparing to brief the board on my wife's museum, Planet Word, <laughs> of which he is a member, and the effect chat GPT will have on words, language, and innovation. So nice little detail there. It's, you know, Craig is getting ready to brief the board of his wife's museum. Something else you need to know about Thomas Friedman is that he is unfathomably rich, okay? Uh, and he's gotten rich writing columns like this. Back to the column. You need to understand, Craig warned me before he started his demo, that this is going to change everything about how we do everything. I think that it represents mankind's greatest invention to date. It is qualitatively different and it will be transformational. So, you know, again, you know, if you asked a computer to come up with a Thomas Friedman column or like the beginning of one, this is just a pure Tom Friedman lead. It's like purportedly about this kind of specific thing, but it's actually, he's telling you this is about anything and everything and it's gonna transform things in ways that, buddy, you don't even understand. 
Large language modules like ChatGPT will steadily increase in their capabilities, Craig added, and take us, quote, toward a form of artificial intelligence delivering efficiencies and operations ideas, discoveries, and insights that have never been attainable before across every domain. So there's going to be efficiencies that are going to be in operations ideas, discoveries, and insights. That's a lot of new efficiencies that have never been attainable across every domain. So again, we're talking about everything here. Now, look, then Friedman asked Craig for a demonstration and he's just like spends the next few paragraphs marveling at stuff, which like to me, it does not, this is not that impressive that a computer can do this. It's stuff like, you know, he asked chat GPT to uh, summarize planet word, which I guess is like this thing at his wife's museum or it is his wife's museum, summarize its mission in 400 words, then do it in 200, then do it in Arabic, then do it, you know, in some kind of, as a Shakespearean sonnet or something. I don't think it's that impressive that a computer could do this. But anyway, Friedman, you know, as ever is, is a little bit troubled by this. He writes, I could barely sleep that night. Well, troubled, but also, you know, he's, he's buoyant because changes are happening. They're happening, but they're also coming. The temporality is always very confused with Friedman. I could barely sleep that night. To observe an AI system, its software, microchips, and connectivity, produce that level of originality in multiple languages in just seconds each time. Well, the first thing that came to mind was the observation by the sci-fi writer Arthur C. Clarke that, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Now, well, this is where the film angle comes in, and I, you're a bit of a film guy, so you're going to like this. The second thing that came to mind was a moment at the start of The Wizard of Oz, the tornado scene where everything and everyone are lifted into a swirling gyre, including Dorothy and Toto, and then swept away from mundane black and white Kansas to the gleaming futuristic land of Oz where everything is in color. We are about to be hit by such a tornado. Okay, so we're now working with our basic metaphor, which is the tornado. Now, the tornado turns out to be a moment. This is a Promethean moment we've entered, one of those moments in history when certain new tools, ways of thinking, or energy sources are introduced that are such a departure and advance on what existed before that you just can't change one thing, you have to change everything. That is how you create, how you compete, how you collaborate, how you work, how you learn, how you govern, and yes, how you cheat, commit crimes, and fight wars. Uh, so the tornado is actually a moment, um, but then Friedman awkwardly uh, begins talking about how there's actually a new thing which is kind of the same thing but not, which is a Promethean era. Uh, this is classic Friedman. We know the key Promethean eras of the last 600 years, the invention of the printing press, the scientific revolution, the agricultural revolution combined with the industrial revolution, nuclear power, blah, 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 personal computing, blah, blah, blah. Now this moment. Only this Promethean moment is not driven by a single invention like a printing press or a steam engine, but rather a technology super cycle. So as AI becomes moment, and moment becomes tornado, and tornado becomes moment, and then moment becomes era. The moment qua era qua tornado is actually a cycle. He writes, it is, oh, sorry, not a regular cycle, a super cycle. That's something else he likes to do is he adds like little intensifiers to everything. It is our ability to sense, digitize, process, learn, share, and act all increasingly with the help of AI. That loop is being put into everything from your car to your fridge, to your smartphone, to fighter jets. And it's increasingly more and more processed processes every day so wait sorry i just want to interrupt at the moment because i'm actually kind of getting lost in the weeds of this article is he he's he's pro ai like he's enthusiastically pro ai oh absolutely all that makes tom friedman anxious the reason why he said he, he you know he could barely sleep is because he's just so you know he's he's vibrating because he's worried you know that like the old modes of thinking you know in in technology and politics like geopolitics literally every, the, the old modes of thinking and everything whatever they are and how nebulously you know and broadly might define them they're not going to be able to keep up with this we need revolutionary new modes of thinking okay and the revolutionary new modes of thinking are sort of outsourcing it to this like non-ideological computer program <laughs> that like you can insert the problems into it and then it'll spit you out like the correct solution is, is that is that a bad maybe, faith analysis maybe i mean you are giving it you are you're making a heroic effort to like interpret some meaning out of this but even that i think is giving thomas friedman too much credit because don't forget the moment which is you know initially introduced is like this is a single technology ai we've just learned that it is not actually a moment it's an era well it's a, it's a tornado 
but it's the tornado is an era, which is also a moment. But then we learn that the moment is not a single invention. It's actually a technology super cycle. So this is a classic Friedman thing of like, you take your idea, but then you expand it out. Like, don't forget the flatteners and the steroids and the uber steroids. And then we get another Friedman move here, which is furthering his kind of penchant for self-reference where, you know, I, he's such a good writer. He quotes himself. He quotes a neologism that he's making up on the spot in his own article. He says, it's why I call our Promethean era the age of acceleration, amplification and democratization. So again, the columns, I'm sorry to carp on this, but it's like the column is called our Promethean moment, but then now the moment has become an era, and now the era he's telling us is actually an age of these three things. Never have more humans had access to more cheap tools that amplify their power at a steadily accelerating rate while being diffused into the personal and working lives of more and more people all at once, and it's happening faster than most anyone anticipated. So, you know, again, there is a process, it affects everything, more people than ever before, it's personal, it's also about work, and the momentum of this is faster than anyone expected. Again, uh, you know, again, what it, what it is we're talking about here is is left pretty vague. He's got an example that's, you know, equally convoluted that has to do with protein folding, and it's really boring, so I'm not going to read that over. Well, the reason I wanted to ask if he thought AI was the future of, of politics is because in his last paragraph here, he writes... We're going to need to develop what I call complex adaptive coalitions. <laughs> Hell yes. Business, government, social entrepreneurs, <laughs> educators, competing superpowers, and moral philosophers <laughs> all come together to define how we get the best and cushion the worst of AI. Uh, so, I mean, that's a pretty familiar thing. You know, all the stakeholders have to get together at the table and uh, not left, but right, not forward, etc. I mean, there's nothing particularly <laughs> unique to that idea. But he continues, no one player in this coalition can fix the problem alone. It requires a very different governing model from traditional left-right politics. Uh, again, this, this, the, the spirit of, of a lot of this could have been what, written What if we had a third way? <laughs> <laughs> right. Then we will have to transition to it amid the worst great power tensions since the end of the Cold War and culture wars breaking out inside virtually every democracy. We better figure this out fast because, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. So is his concern that, you know, AI is this incredibly powerful tool, this like Promethean tool that if it falls into the like, like what's good about AI is that it is not left, not right, but forward. You know, in difficult times, it's this potentially like simplifying solution to a lot of things. But we all know that artificial intelligence is is man made. You know, even even this solution, even this left, not right, but forward solution might be infected at the root by ideology. And therefore, everyone has to get around the table and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I, I just I, I fundamentally don't understand, like, why is this different from anything else? Why is AI so great? And, and what's the problem? I don't I don't understand anything, really. Well, I think there's a reason why you don't understand this. And it's because it doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely gobbledygook like as i said off the top thomas friedman has been writing this column for conservatively 30 years now he has been writing this exact same idea using this exact same combination of sort of like awkward neologisms and sort of like convoluted imagery that builds on top of other convoluted imagery so it's it's just a few paragraphs uh, before the end where you know having explained that all of this is not actually about a single technology because remember we're in a technology super cycle he then returns to chat gpt but then he says that it's actually something called a meta technology so it's not a single technology either and then he he starts talking about how ai you know while there are good th it's it's what he calls dual use like many other modern digital technologies and by dual use, he means it can be a tool or a weapon. So what you have to understand is that for Thomas Friedman, some things are also like other things. And some things can both be good and potentially also bad. And so he talks about nuclear energy. He talks about, you know, governments created a system of controls to curb its proliferation to bad actors. Not perfectly, but not bad. And then that's how he gets to... I think my favorite part of the piece, which is this idea of the complex adaptive coalition, which, you know, 
it kind of just, it sounds like, you know, like so many of these things, just as a meta technology is difficult at the level of detail to really separate from regular technology. You know, it's, it's like a technology only better. The complex adaptive coalition could just be describing any coalition of sufficient size and complexity. But then I like that he throws in competing superpowers into the complex adaptive coalition. So you have competition as part of the coalition, which is another very like Friedmanite construction. And, you know, again, the complex adaptive coalition is something that he's just sort of like inserting here. And then it's just like the, the column just ends by saying we better figure this out because Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. So look, what any of this means is, well, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. It is classic Thomas Friedman nonsense. It is so much fun. I cannot get enough of this, honestly. And I think that, you know, Tom Friedman in many ways is not a columnist. You know, for me, he's a meta columnist. He's a complex adaptive columnist. He's somebody who takes his one kind of silly derivative post-1989 idea, which is not even really an insight. And then he's just able to like blow it up into hundreds of columns, books, Somehow three Pulitzer Prizes, bestsellers, again, conservatively tens of millions of dollars. And the effect only gets better the more of these you read. I have read this column, you know, like a hundred times conservatively. And it, it, yeah, it only gets better. You know, as, as steroids become uber steroids, you know, Friedman's become uber Friedman's. Well, bringing together the topics of AI and the Iraq war, I'd like to conclude this episode by noting that I've actually brought back our third mic, the chat GPT bot, to answer a question that's been on my mind throughout this entire recording session. Was the Iraq war justified? And I think we can finally put this issue to bed. Uh, chat GPT says, as an AI language model, I cannot provide a subjective and definitive answer to this question. So, you know, the usual. The decision to go to war in Iraq was controversial and continues to be debated today. The war was initiated by the United States in 2003 with the stated aim of removing Saddam Hussein's regime, which was accused of possessing weapons of mass destruction and supporting terrorism. However, the actual existence of these weapons was disputed, and the war has been criticized for its high cost in human lives, economic impact, and political fallout, as well as its perceived lack of success in achieving its objectives. Ultimately, opinions on the justification of the Iraq War will depend on individual perspectives and political beliefs. So there you have it. There is ChatGPT's definitive assessment of the 2003 war in Iraq. Now watch this drive. Yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore. Come out, come out, wherever you are, and meet the young lady who stems from a star. She fell from the sky, she fell very far, and Kansas, she says, is the name of the star. Kansas, she says, is the name of the star.